place in 1 Corinthians 1 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I was uh, <clears throat> looking through some headlines and I heard this story about a massive split that happened in the earth's crust in Africa. I think I've got a picture for it up there for you. Uh, this happened, I believe, in 2019. And quite literally overnight, sorry, in 2018, a giant crack just appeared in Kenya seemingly overnight. And what was interesting about the story, I believe these are your guys's. I forgot to get that to you. <coughs> you see the crack, it's running through actually one of the main rural roads there. I believe it's in East Kenya. And the, the crack is quite large. It, it, in some places it seems like it's something you could jump across like a little ravine. But in, in several places, it's so deep that if you fell in, you would die. It's 50 feet deep in many places. And there are definitely some places that are so wide, somebody couldn't even jump across. But what really puzzled people is not just that this thing happened, but, you know, of course, scientists, they want to ask the question, how did this thing happen? There's really two theories. There's um, the theory of tectonic plates shifting and creating uh, tension beneath the earth's surface, and then it forms this crack, almost like an earthquake. And then others blame these torrential rains that happen in this part of Kenya, that underneath the surface there's some ground shifting, and then there's just that one rain. It's, there's nothing special about it. But because so much has been shifting underground, that one rain comes and it just caverns out this large crack in the earth's surface. Now, there's debate about how this happened, but if you notice that both sides of that debate agree on one thing, it's that a split that large didn't happen overnight. That the large crack that you see there in the surface of the earth in Kenya is a result of things that were going on underneath the surface for months, years, or maybe even decades. And tonight, I think that this picture serves as a parable for what the church at Corinth was about to become. I don't think it would be fair to label the church at Corinth as a splitting church. Paul was able to address them as one church, one body, so that's, that's at least one plus for them being together as a church. But I would say that we could call the church at Corinth a splintering church. That much like this picture before this happened, there are things going on underneath the surface in the church at Corinth that if not addressed, would lead to severe fractions in the church. Because here's the truth of the matter. Churches can splinter for years before they actually split. And they splinter for all sorts of things, don't they? I mean, there's legitimate splintering that goes on over major doctrine. I mean, we, we can't really coexist as a church if we don't agree on what a Christian is. And we don't agree on what, who should be baptized because that affects who is a member of a church. So there could be splintering that goes on in churches over that. There could be splintering that goes on over 
less consequential doctrines. Not to say that the Bible doesn't speak about it, but it doesn't affect the churches gathering together. There can be churches that splinter over questions of methodology and practice. And this can range the whole gamut. What services should we have or not have? What types of songs should our church sing? What should people wear when they're preaching or singing? What types of outreach should we do? What types of ministries for the kids should we have? What kind of building should we have? Should the church have debt or no debt? This, these are things that churches split over all the time. Or I should say splinter over. Churches can and often are splintered over how sin should be handled. Should that member or the pastor have confronted that person who is in sin? I was just talking to a pastor, a form, former pastor, a couple weeks ago who mentioned that the very thing that kind of sealed the deal in his church and kind of was beginning to split the church was that he was confronting sin in a particular officer in the church and the church wasn't for that. Churches can splinter based on their makeup. No, not the makeup that you wear on your face, ladies. The makeup of the church. What town people are in. What part of town they're in. What age they are. What pastor they prefer on staff. And I know it's not comfortable for us to live in this reality, but church, we have to agree on this. That all Christians have the tendency to settle into factions based on these types of issues. I would say this based on my limited experience, that every church, to some degree, is splintered. Every church, to some degree, is splintered or splintering because every church is made up of sinners who choose sin over righteousness. And so because every church deals with some splintering, I think God has preserved for us tonight 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 7. Because I think in our verses tonight, Paul introduces a large section of the letter dedicated to this topic. And this is the title of tonight's sermon. God's solution for a splintering church. What is God's solution for a splintering church? God is going to use the pen of Paul to urge every church to do three things. To end their division, to focus on Christ, and to focus on the power of the gospel. Let's look at our passage tonight, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Paul says this in verse 10. And I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of, a, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. This is the word of the Lord. Paul gives us three instructions tonight. Verses 10 through 12, Paul gives us a plea to end division. A plea to end division. And and you notice the seriousness of the tone when Paul opens up in verse number 10, that I beseech you, brethren. Often we're told that that word means beg. I don't think that's probably the best way to translate that in our 2023 lingo. I think he's pleading with them. And it's a serious plea because he invokes the name of Jesus Christ. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I could be mistaken, but the next time he uses that language is in chapter 5 when he tells them to dismiss somebody from the membership of the church. This is serious business. He's pleading to them by the name of the Lord, and he tells them quite clearly he doesn't want there to be any divisions. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Look at verse number 10. I don't want there to be... I want there to be no divisions among you. All right? You don't have to be fancy study of the word to understand what Paul is saying there. And in fact, Paul's going to really attack this head on for chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So buckle up. We're going to be talking about this a lot. Because that was the issue in the church at Corinth. They were divided. And Paul gives the situation that helped him understand that they were divided. In verse number 11, he explains that he had heard from the house of Chloe... Um, maybe a servant, maybe an employee, I don't know. But somebody had brought news to him that there was contentions. Literally, it means quarreling in the church. So Paul had received news that there's quarreling in the church, and he describes the quarreling that's going on in verse number 13. And we, we, we're familiar with this, if you've been in church and heard First Corinthians enough, that there are factions in the church. People had staked their identity on a certain person. Now, verse number 12 tells us that their identity was staked on their particular favorite preacher or pastor. I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Cephas, who's Peter, apparently had visited the church at Corinth at some time after Paul. And then there's a group that says, I'm of Christ. Now, I think this issue has been overplayed sometimes when I've heard preaching on this passage. I don't think that the church at Corinth is like, a church in Tucson I'm familiar with, that during uh, the voting on the next pastor, there were quite literally in this church, people who had buttons that they wore to church that said so-and-so for pastor. I mean, that's pretty bad if your church is in that spot. I don't think Corinth was there. But quite clearly there were people who not only were had a, a preference for who their favorite pastor or preacher was, but it's clear as we read the letter that There are issues that the church has with Paul because they like something about Peter, perhaps that he had a wife and Paul didn't. 
Or they like something about Apollos and his speaking style. Maybe his speaking style more represented the Greek oratorical approach of their day than Paul did. That's our next installment in 1 Corinthians. It's going to be about that very thing. We don't know, but the reality is, is that there's under the surface, there's some division going on in this church. And God is very clear through the pen of the Apostle Paul that he wants them to be not just no division, he wants unity in the church. Notice how Paul describes this unity that he's striving for at the very, very beginning of verse number 10. He says, and this is a colorful way to describe unity in the church. I think it's helpful to us. He says, I want you all to speak the same thing. Now that's funny to me, right? You get 10 church members in a room and ask them any question, and it's quite unlikely they'll speak the same thing, right? On, on almost any issue, politics or certain, you know, fringe doctrines in the scripture. But Paul says, I want you to speak the same thing. And you might say, well, Paul, what same things do we need to speak the same thing about? Because you don't expect us all to agree on everything, do you? Well, he explains. Look at the end of verse number 10. I love this description. He says, I want you to be perfectly joined together. Physical joint. He's using terms that are physically joining. And how does he want them to be joined together? In two categories. A same mindset and a same judgment. I really think that the whole of 1 Corinthians is going to dissect what Paul means by the mindsets the church should share and the judgments the church should share. Because it really seems to me that the issue of 1 Corinthians breaks down in these two categories quite nicely. There's a lot of things that Paul wants them to agree on. And I think the letter of 1 Corinthians gives us a template, church family, on what things are important for us to agree on. And if they're not in the letter or in the book, then it's okay if we don't. There's a lot of mindsets in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1 and the early part, chapter 2, is he wants them to agree on the mindset on where the power of ministry comes from. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, he's going to drive home that the power is not in the presentation, the power is in the gospel. And he even goes out, out of his way to say, I didn't even try to be impressive in my presentation because I wanted your faith to be in the gospel, not in men. They need to have the same mindset about the place of pastors and apostles in their life. Chapters 3 and 4 uh, dive into that more deeply. Chapter 12, 13, and 14, they need to have the same mindset about spiritual gifts. Chapter 9, they need to have the same mindset about compensating pastors. Chapter 16, they need to have the same mindset about giving toward their church. But he also wants them to have the same judgment. So same mindset. What's a mindset? It's a belief we hold as a church in unity. A judgment is more than a belief. A judgment is an action that's taken on a belief. And the middle chunk of the letter has some judgments Paul needs the church to get on board with. Some judgments on sin in the church in chapter number 5 and chapter number 6. Some judgments on different issues going on in marriages and in people's lives in chapter 7 and a little bit of chapter 
8, there's judgments that this church needs to get a hang of and they need to come to terms about. They need to have the same judgment about eating in the temple of idols in chapter 8. The same judgment on the Lord's Supper. The same judgment on the doctrine of the resurrection. So what does this tell us? That as a church, God wants there to be no division and he wants us to unite around certain essential mindsets and judgments. And church family, listen. Every corner of Christianity is infected with the problem of getting super focused on peripheral issues that should not divide churches. I would say that if it's not expounded at length in one of the epistles, we ought to just agree to disagree. It should not affect church division. And if it is, then we need to come to terms with what the mindset is. And what Paul's going to come to terms with with this church is it's not about who the best minister was. They were having the wrong conversation. Because now he's going to point them to two focuses the church need to have. If we want to achieve this, no division, Paul's going to give us two focuses that really I think are introducing the next three chapters. Two focuses. Here's the first one. If we want to move towards unity as a church, you must focus on the person of Christ more than the servants of Christ. I hope that if you're a Holy Spirit indwelt believer here, you want this church to be perfectly joined together as much as I do. I know that's many of y'all's heart. And so if we want that, this is the means to do that. Paul says, focus on the person of Christ more than the servants of Christ. And what I think Paul is exposing us is like the Corinthians, Christians throughout all ages have had a temptation to divide based on their loyalty to specific servants of Christ. They have a temptation to divide based on their preference for their favorite servant of Christ or maybe the ideology that's represented by that servant of Christ. Now what's interesting to me about verses 13 through 16 is Paul talks about baptism a lot. If you count it, if I counted right, could have counted wrong, the word baptism shows up six times in four verses. Which gives me the idea, he doesn't come out and say it, but they were all really like proud of who baptized them. I think. I think that's what's going on. And Paul says, I love his tone. I mean, he's, he's pretty like almost sarcastic, isn't he? Uh, you know, he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes off and lists a couple people that he baptized, which is interesting to me that Paul maybe baptized so many people. He's like, I, don't, I can't even remember who all I baptized in Corinth, right? He put up those type of numbers. But what's interesting is Paul, his strategy was just to baptize the leaders of the church and then he would hand off the church to the local leaders there. And I think Gaius and, and, and Stephanus and Crispus were the guys who were baptizing after him. Maybe Peter and Apollos had baptized some people. But I think we all have the same tendency as the church of Corinth. We may not, you know, think about who baptized us and be raw rawing over that. But I think that the timeless tendency of of sinful people is that we tend to put too much at stake on a pastor or a person who's had a tremendous impact in our life. I think it's our temptation as Christians 
And I think this is the beauty of how God ministers, and also it, it could be a downside. That all of us, we kind of gravitate towards that one person. I mean, you, I know you all can think of that one pastor who just made a particularly special impact in your life. You all have them. You've told me sometimes. And I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with that. There will always be one or two particular people who've ministered to you in a special way. But here's what's going on in this church. Is that if we're not careful, our loyalty to a person or to the type of ministry that person represents, to the particular beliefs and preferences that that person may have had, can begin to be a point of splintering in any church. Whether a church has had a lot of pastors, or sometimes when a church has had one pastor for a very, very long time, it could be an issue. And here's what Paul is trying to tell the church at Corinth, and our church as well, that our focus Though we can honor and though we can give double honor, as the scripture says, to those who are the servants of Christ and apostles and pastors of the church, our focus is on Christ. Look at verse 13. One powerful question Paul asks. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? You know what that means? I think there's three things we can squeeze out of that phrase. What Paul is saying there, that word divided literally means to be parted in pieces. That when a church tries to splinter into groups of any sort, when a church tries to splinter into groups, what a church is doing without recognizing it is they are trying to split Christ in pieces. Remember back in verse number 9 that it is the collective people of God that are called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ. And Paul says Christ is not, is not divided. He is not in this group, in that group, in that group. Christ has one people. And because Christ has one people, his church should look like one people. Not like the church of Corinth that had four peoples. Christ is not divided, and when a church tries to split into groups, whether it's under the surface or when it's very vocal and very obvious, Christ is being parted out and split up between these groups. And listen to my church, as seriously as the Apostle Paul said that, Christ will have none of that. Christ will have none of that. And I think the special blessing of Christ does not rest on churches that try to part him into pieces. Because he's not playing that game. Number two, I think this phrase tells us that the unity of the Trinity is our example for the unity of the church. Is Christ divided? Well, no. He is united with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you study scripture, they play very different roles on the team. They're one person. They're so united that at times it's just best to describe them as one person because they are one person. But they do so many different things that at times it's best to describe them as three persons. We call that the Trinity. They're three and one and one and three. And what I think Paul is saying is that if you want an example of what Christ is trying to do in his church, look at, look at Christ and his relationship with the Trinity. I think in some ways Paul's pointing forward to the chapter on spiritual gifts where God is gifting his church with all sorts of different roles and giftings. 
And yet, though the church is diverse in its abilities and its giftings, he wants them to function as such a cohesive whole that it's, you could almost just call it one person. Is Christ divided? Well, no, he's not. I think also what Paul is saying and implying is that our unity as a church is a better display of Christ than being right about certain issues. What displayed Christ better? Who won the argument of who was the best pastor? Paul, Cephas, Apollos? Or? No. What displayed Christ was people getting over their preferences and coming together as a group about essential mindsets and essential judgments. But there's a second focus we must have as a church to move towards greater unity, and every church could do better at this. And here's the second focus. You and I must focus on the power of the cross more than the style of presentation. Look at verse number 17. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he describes the manner in which he preached the gospel. And again, the next section will delve into this in more detail. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The Corinthians were tempted to divide over what I would label as presentation issues. This, this wisdom of words, as we'll discover more next week, is this obsession that the Corinthians had in their culture. In Greek culture, you know, all the, it was the golden age of philosophy, right? Which means it was the golden age of people blabbering about a bunch of things, really in fancy rhetoric, that said not a whole lot of things. That, that's philosophy for you in a lot of ways. And so the, the Corinthians were so influenced by this that they were drawn naturally to people who followed the, and, and their style of presentation matched the big popular self-help speakers of the day. So they were really drawn to those who had wisdom of words. And that meant that their style of presentation was very uh, impressive and very, um, you know, lofty and high. And it kind of was a big pat on the back for big, fancy, high-class people in Corinth. Because Corinth was a pretty wealthy city. And so they were drawn to presentation that had wisdom of words. But Paul is saying that the presentation is not where our focus should be because the presentation is not where the power is. The power is not in the presentation. The power is in the gospel itself. And what Paul is saying to this church is he's saying, if you want to come together as a church, stop dividing over this type of presentation and this type of presentation and come together not on the manner of presentation, but on the content that's being presented. Come to an agreement about the importance of content over presentation. And I think here's what Paul is saying. That Christians can have an unhealthy focus on a style of presentation more so than the content of presentation. Now again, just like the, the preferences for ministers... We all have preferences, and there's nothing wrong with a preference. All of you, I know, because some of you have been subtle or not so subtle to tell me, have stylistic preferences of how the content 
of a gospel church service is presented. And this happens in a lot of different ways, right? It happens in the music, right? We all have to come to an agreement that when it comes right down to it, the Bible's utterly unclear about style of presentation. We could go back and forth on that, but that's the reality, especially in the New Testament. There's not a whole lot there about style of presentation. The content is king. What words we sing are king, and yet, as Christians, our focus sometimes can be more on whether we're singing a four-stanza hymn or a contemporary song that was written in the last 20 years, because if it's written in the last 20 years, it can't be as good as songs that were written in the last 500 years. Friend, I, I love hymns more than you probably think, but I just want to help you. That doesn't matter. Style presentation ultimately does not matter because the power of singing is not in the melody or the type of melody we have or the amount of instruments or the lack thereof. I would wish we had more. I wouldn't mind it. I know many of you wouldn't mind it. Some of you probably wish we had less, but it's okay. Because the presentation doesn't matter as much as the content. And Christian, it's okay for you to love hymns and think that that's the only thing that churches can sing. But as soon as it becomes an issue, listen, as soon as it becomes an issue where we are no longer as a church speaking the same thing, then it's a problem to this pastor. Now, I haven't sensed that that's happening, but I'm just, I'm, we're here in the text, and so we're going to preach on it. Love hymns all you want, but that should not be something our church divides. Oh, no, I wish pastor had sung this or sung that. Or when, when a certain song comes on, I'm just not going to sing as my silent way of boycotting this style of music. Now, I'd like to think everything we sing is quite reverent. Just ask the church up on the north side of town how reverent our music is. They would agree that it's probably a little stuffy for their taste. But Christian, listen. Ask yourself, what displays Christ better? The structure of verses and choruses in a song? Or you singing a song you may not like? Because God knows there's a Christian across the auditorium that could be helped by hearing you sing it. Here's what I want. I, I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to stereotype old and young, but it's going to happen. That maybe the tendency could be is that the younger people prefer this type of music, the older people prefer to this type of music. And I know in this church that's certainly not the case. But I want young people in our church to sing the songs that edify the old people whoever that may be. And listen, what shows Christ is when the older folks sing the songs that edify the young people, even if it's not your taste. Because the good news is this. You have, I think, 168 hours a week or so, 167 hours a week, that you can listen to whatever music you want that honors God. And so as a church, when we come together, by design, as long as I have the ability to, our music will always be diverse because I intentionally want to sing songs that you may not like. Because it reflects Christ better when you sing something that may not be your preference. But when we come together as a church to say, the message honors Christ, the message lifts up the name of Christ, and there are Christians in this congregation who may be edified if I lift up my voice and sing to Him. Here's the reality. Style of presentation should not divide a church. That's why I think it's so silly that churches 
have literally services that are traditional and contemporary. What a silly, against scripture thing to do. No, we need to blend those babies together. Because we need Christians uniting over content, not style. The same can be true of preaching. You could prefer this type of preaching or that type of preaching. And friend, I, I fully admit that I am not everyone's cup of tea. I haven't heard too many comments, so I've heard a few. But here's what I want to help you with. Is that I endeavor to try my best with style and, and, and presentation and all of that. And we're going to have guest speakers and, you know, our former pastor preach that may be your cup of tea. But here's what I would encourage you to do. What will help you walk with Christ better is to say, you know what? This pastor or this guest speaker may not be my style. But am I being fed this? And Christian, what is a mark of maturity is not you obsessing over style or presentation, but obsessing over this. And go figure, when Christians get their eyes off of presentation and put it on the, where the power really is, and it's the content of the cross, Watch as God starts to perfectly join together Christians who recognize what is peripheral and what is the main thing. I don't know who gets the credit for coming up with this thing, this saying, but it is worth repeating that churches can be unified when they keep the main thing, the main thing. What's the main thing? It is the person of Christ, and it's the power of the cross. That's the main thing. And as soon as our eyes get off of these essential issues, not just those two, but all the things I mentioned early on in the sermon that are addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians, all fall under the power of the cross. Because our judgment of sin is really an outflow of our thinking about the power of the cross. Because churches that don't believe in the power of the cross, they don't deal with sin. Because they don't think it's important. But when we keep the main thing, the main thing, God blends very diverse people together. And people of a lot of different opinions start speaking the same thing about the things that really matter. What is God's solution for a splintering church? It is focusing on the person of Christ more than the servants of Christ. Christian, that's why, best I can, church family, I want to talk about Jesus a lot in my sermons. Hopefully you've noticed that. Why? Because what did Jesus say? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And I talked about this last week, that as we are drawn to Christ... Church member A and church member B, as we're drawn to Christ, what happens? We're drawn closer together. As we focus on Christ and not on people and styles and methodologies, we focus on his cross and not presentation. We come closer together. So here's what we must do tonight. We must repent if we've been guilty of splintering over the wrong things. I have no idea if that's the case. 
Because you know it's true in pastoral ministry, the last person to find out about a splintering church is the pastor. So you know, you know what your side conversations have been. You know what resentment is, is weighing in your heart. Repent of that. Because what that evidence is, is you've lost focus on the glory of Christ. And church, let's just draw our attention to Jesus Christ. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let me pray with you, and we'll be done.